Radio Mano Papachango. Chris and everyone, uh, this is Matt from the uh, UP of Michigan, just out on a, a sunrise ski with my buddy Otto, and uh, it's 7 degrees, got about 10 inches of snow last night, and uh, everything is the way it should be. I just want to thank you for, um, for what you do, providing a uh, peaceful, authentic place for conversation and ideas and stories that um, help me to stay grounded and help me to brighten my little corner of this world and hopefully uh, maybe all our corners will connect someday. Take her easy. Hey Chris, this is Kelia. Um, I'm talking to you from just outside of Collingwood in Ontario at this beautiful pastoral-like property. Uh, it is my birthday. I'm 30 years old today. It's a big one. And I'm spending my day painting the outside of a beautiful house. It's sort of like my, my dream house, actually. So I feel pretty lucky that I can walk around and imagine that all of this is mine. Maybe one day. Anyway, I just wanted to say thank you for all that you do for everyone that listens and uh, thank you to all the people on your podcast fascinating inspiring people and I wanted to shout out to my new husband Craig who introduced me to your podcast he's a super cool dude anyway uh, have a good day hope you enjoy my birthday bye Oh, hi, Chris. This is Isaac, and I'm sending you this message from central Queensland in Australia, where I've just spent a couple of weeks with a group called Frontline Action on Coal, uh, protesting and blockading a proposed new coal mine here in Australia in the 21st century. And I have to say that I feel very empowered and that I've uh, been able to channel my frustration and my anxiety about this climate emergency and uh, a state of affairs that um, uh, we're all facing. And uh, I highly recommend to everyone out there to join your local group that are taking direct action on the issues that you really care about and you'll feel what people coming together can do. Thanks so much. Love your work. Bye. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So nice to hear from you guys. Uh, some of these messages I'm playing are kind of old, so I don't think it's um, still her birthday. <laughs> she might be 35 by now. I hope she's still together with her guy. Um, yeah, but in any case, uh, I really appreciate these messages, even if it takes me months to get around to playing them. I'm sorry about that. Uh What's going on here? This episode is with a guy named Andrew Gold. Um, I don't know why Andrew wanted to be on my podcast, but he sent me an email and I guess he listens to it and and uh, sort of outlined what he does, uh, which 
is really interesting. Um, he's a filmmaker. He's a very controversial. Well, he's not controversial, but he's interested in controversial um, subjects. He's a very kind of mild-mannered, uh, sweet dude, apparently. Um, but he loves getting his hands dirty, intellectually speaking. So, um, you know, I get a lot of emails. I, I get a lot of emails from publicists who are pitching, you know, some author. Recently, it seems like every fucking Navy SEAL has written a book about, you know, how to win at life using Navy SEAL tricks or something. It's like, why on earth do you think I want to have a bunch of Navy... I mean, I have a friend who's a Navy SEAL who's been on the podcast. Maybe that's why. Um, but, yeah, Navy SEALs. If you're a publicist pitching a Navy SEAL book, I'm not your guy. But if you are a filmmaker who did an incredible film about an exorcist in Argentina, Andrew Gold, then I'm your guy. Come talk to me about it. Um, you should check it out. You can just search Andrew Gold Exorcism or Exorcist on YouTube and you'll see that video. I will, of course, include a link in the show notes for this episode. So if you have any trouble, you can just um, click on the link in the show notes. Uh, yeah, he's a really interesting dude. He's working on a book and I think he said a film uh, at this point about um, pedophilia in Germany. So, yeah, he doesn't shy away from controversial topics, as I said. He uh, lived in Argentina and Colombia for years. Now he's in, in Berlin, I believe. Um, he's originally from Great Britain. So this is a great episode. Really enjoy it. And if you would prefer to watch this video, you can go to my YouTube channel. Chris Ryan is the YouTube channel. And uh, you will see this video uploaded there uh, within Mike normally gets them up there within 24 hours of, of when they're posted on the podcast platforms. Um, and also Mike has posted lots of episodes from the archives. He's working like a busy beaver on that, getting those up there. Um, so the ones that are recorded online like this one. There's a video component, so you can watch it. Uh, the others are just audio. And uh, we have to pull the music out because YouTube creates all sorts of problems for the music. Even Carsey Blanton, who expressed explicitly and expressly performed her song for us and obviously gives us every permission to use it, that still gets triggered on YouTube. So there's no musical content on the YouTube platform, unfortunately. I saw that uh, today the trailer for the film that our boy Simon Rex stars in called Red Rocket is now available and it's going to be in theaters in the U.S. in December, I believe. But you can see the trailer now online. I highly recommend it. I, I've talked about this before, but it's just so wonderful um, to see someone that I love so much. And, um, you know, it has paid his dues in so many ways. And here he is in this incredible film. And people are seriously talking about Oscar nominations for best actor. 
for Simon Rex, my friend. Man, that's just so surreal. Life is surreal. So many weird things going on right now. Volcanoes erupting and Facebook outages. (laughs) All sorts of weird things are going on. But uh, anyway, some of them are good, like what's happening for Simon right now. So maybe there's some balance in the world after all. All right, I'm going to play you out with a really upbeat tune. Uh, I was sort of looking at a couple of different songs I was going to play in this episode, and one of them is uh, very nostalgic and beautiful. I'll play it another time. Carefree Highway by Gordon Lightfoot. It's a classic. Uh, It's an amazing song. But anyway, I was uh, hanging out last night, and this song came up on my shuffle, and it's just so upbeat and cool and um, happy and uh, I thought maybe inject a little bit of that into the podcast because I know sometimes I can be a bit of a downer and uh, you know we're sort of witnessing the demise of western civilization uh, it's hard to get excited and happy about that I guess unless you're sort of a you know satanist or something um, but in any case this is how do you pronounce this I've come this far and I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's Bulmamin. Bulmamin by Orchestra Baobab. I've played them before. They're awesome. Um, Senegalese band that was famous in the 70s. And I think they didn't even make a record. I think they like recorded some cassettes that they sold in bars in Dakar. And then, you know, it's one of these stories where 20 years later, some Africans in Paris were playing the cassette and somebody heard it and this person had some uh, connection to a music studio or publisher or something and they're like, what is this music? This is amazing. And that next thing you know, they sort of get the find the original members of the band and the ones who are still alive, they get them back together and they bring them to Paris and they record a thing. And it's kind of like a Buena Vista social club story, if you're familiar with that. So anyway, this is Orchestra Baobab. The song is called Bulmamin. I have no idea what it means, but apparently it's kind of celebratory and happy. Hope you enjoy it. I will talk to you again soon. Hope everything's going well out there.
I'm here with Andrew Gold. Hi, Andrew Gold. How are you? I'm good, Christopher Ryan. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right, aside from the aforementioned smoke yeah. uh, that I, you and I talked about before we started recording. Um, yeah, I'm smoked in. I guess England is one of the places where you probably don't have to worry about forest fires because it's no. just so damp <laughs> it's very damp it's, it's it's foreign to us we don't really understand what a, a forest fire is i'm still not entirely sure i, I imagine that sometimes they're man-made because somebody's left a cigarette or something but often it's just so hot and nature just makes a, a forest fire yeah i think most of the fires that we're dealing with in the u.s are started by power lines oh um so yeah technology is to thank for those Occasionally, you know, might be a campfire that gets out of control or lightning strikes 
uh, right. start them as well. And they are part of the natural cycle. So to some extent, um, the reason the fires are so horrible now is that they haven't been letting underbrush burn for decades. And so the fuel has built up. Yeah. And the other big problem is that, you know, they log these massive forests and replant them with all the same kind of trees. So they're not really forests anymore. They're more like plantations, right. pine yeah. tree p- plantations. So you don't have the kind of, um, you know, natural ecosystems that would have been more resistant or limited fires. You know, it's like uh, epidemics, right? We don't have the natural breaks in place that uh, pre-civilized humans had, you know, living Mm -hmm. in hunter-gatherer groups. So we have these massive uh, problems that come up. But anyway, listen, I watched your documentary in Argentina. I guess you lived in Argentina for a while, right? You speak Spanish Mm -hmm. quite well. And uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was there. How long were you down there? Six years in the end. Uh, I was one year before that in Medellin in Colombia. Um, and yeah, Spanish was my third language, if you include English as well. Then I learned French and studied in France for a few years and then, yeah, Medellin in Argentina. Um, and it was just a case of um, I wanted to add another language. I became a bit obsessed with languages. And once you've got French, you just add lots of O's and A's to the words. And then, you know, you basically got it. And then Colombia was, yeah, beautiful, amazing place. But I wanted somewhere that felt a little bit more uh, like what I was used to in Europe. And Argentina, Buenos Aires is a lot more similar to what I knew. Um, so after a year in Colombia, it was like, right, I need something more me. Um, and yeah, so I stayed there for years and years. My partner, my girlfriend is Argentine. They're the same person. Um, it's, it's not that I got a partner and a girlfriend, though. You know, that's fine as well. Not yet. Yeah, not as far as she knows. No, she'd be livid about that. But um, yeah, so uh, after six years, we moved back to Europe. Uh, I say back to, that's it was for her moving to, and I moved back to Europe with her. And we're in Berlin now. So this is Guten Tag and everything. Now, what are you doing in Berlin? Uh, investigating pedophiles. As one does. <laughs> As one does, yeah. yeah. I was just looking at yeah, stuff I to think, do. Yeah, go on, sorry. I think I saw you, you posted an interview with uh, a pedophile on your website. Is that right? In, in a yeah. park or something? That's right, that's right. Um, yeah, I, well, I'm always looking for the most controversial people I can find. I find people the most fascinating things that exist, even more than nature, more than anything I love the human mind. So we got to Berlin. Uh, the main reason was I wanted to be back in Europe and I wanted another language and, you know, just another another experience. And the first thing that I, I thought was, okay, what's the most controversial, weird, strange thing I can find? And it so happens, I didn't know this before we got here, but Berlin has the world's, supposedly the world's only clinic for pedophiles or pedophiles, as you guys say, um, where they never, never report them to authorities. So they can come in and tell this the therapists anything that they did, that they're going to do, whatever, and they do not get reported. So it's obviously very controversial. And the first thing I thought was, okay, I'm going to look into that and, and see, you know, what the sides are there. And is this for a, a TV project or just personal interest or what? Initially, I was thinking about a TV project and I started to see how hard it was to be able to get these guys on film. Um, so then yeah. I thought may, maybe it could do something as audio. It's like a freelance project while I do other things. Uh, and then I started writing a book. So I've basically finished a book 
Um, and I have no idea if a publisher will ever take it, you know, because it's just such a taboo topic. But it, but it's been a crazy couple of years for me. The, the kinds of people I've met who I never, ever knew existed, who just exist out there, it's extraordinary. Have you ever heard of a guy named Jesse Baring? No, who's that? He's, a, he's an author. He's an American author. He lives in New Zealand now. Hmm. He teaches down there. Um, he's a friend of mine. He's written uh, probably half a dozen books at this point, and one of them is called Perv, and it's about perversions and sexuality, and um, it might be worth looking into for you, and I could put you in touch with him if you wanted to interview him. He yeah. argues that pedophilia is a sexual orientation and therefore should not be stigmatized in the sense that it's unavoidable it's not something that people are choosing um to to feel those desires of course now the behavior is another issue uh if someone acts on those desires obviously you know there are criminal implications there and um you know people are hurt by that but simply having the desire uh, is something that he argues is as unavoidable as being homosexual or heterosexual or, you know, any other fetish that um, men experience, pr predominantly men. Um, and it's just like, it's just the way it is. And so to blame someone for that and make it criminal for them to speak to a therapist about it yeah. is totally self-defeating. Yeah. Does your experience align with that perspective? It does. It, uh, in the majority, it depends on what doctor you speak to. So the, 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 the program here is called Don't Offend. Uh, in the UK, the equivalent is called Stop It Now. And I went to speak to them and the head of their organization said the opposite. Uh, and his was not the prevalent view across the world. But it was that, um, not that necessarily it's a choice, but his belief was that these pedophiles are people who often struggle to form relationships with other adults and they find uh, solace in talking to children uh, because they're the only ones who are going to, who they can talk to with confidence. And, and he tries to change their sexuality by making them masturbate to adult porn and things like that. Now, that sounds counterintuitive to us, and that makes us sort of shudder a bit because it reminds us of gay conversion, which is an right. abhorrent practice. Um, and when I asked him about that, he said, yeah, but the difference here is that homosexuality is a sexuality. And that for him, for this guy in England, the Stop It Now head, it is not. It is a uh, mental illness, I suppose, that can be cured. The, but most people seem to be saying that it is actually um, a, a sexual orientation, somewhere in between. You know, we don't entirely understand it because even the people who say it's a sexual ori orientation, even the, the, those doctors will often say, well, it can happen when you're in childhood, something might happen to you, maybe you're abused, maybe whatever, and it can stunt your sexual progression. You know, an 11-year-old is attracted to another 11-year-old, 12 to 12, and so on. And some people believe that when you're 12, let's say something happens to you at that point, you can stay. And that's why there are so many people who have been abused, and it's a circle. That would imply it's not an orientation. So we're really in murky ground and nobody seems to be exactly sure, even the top academics. And it, it seems to be a mixture of a bit of everything. Yeah, I, I personally think, and I'm no expert on this, but I, I 
keep thinking about uh, research that I, I discovered when I was writing Sex at Dawn about mm-hmm. um, this window, this sort of window of malleability that males experience where something can happen to them that imprints on them for life. Wow. Uh, and, you know, it, it's expressed in men as fetishes generally, right? Like someone's gets off on women wearing red shoes or, you know, certain kind of panties or whatever it is, or latex or something. Um, and generally this can be traced back to an experience that the boy has between six and 10 years of age, some somewhere in there. And that window closes and it's like, um, it's like a stamp in, in warm wax. And then the wax cools and it's there for life. It's not going to change. Whereas female sexuality remains malleable throughout life. Um, And this research shows that this kind of difference between male and female sexuality is evident in non-human mammals as well. Wow. And uh, yeah, so it's quite interesting. And so, you know, in these matters, pedophilia and, and even homosexuality, I feel like and this is very controversial and I kind of hesitate to, to I, I've never written about this because I don't want it to be used in the wrong way. But I feel like a lot of our sort of, you know, overly simplified sense of sexuality is, you know, either a man is a homosexual or he's not. Right. It's it's sort of a digital uh, view of these things. And I think that my feeling is that some men are born homosexual. It's a genetic or or something that happens to the fetus, you know, has something to do with the amount of testosterone in the amniotic fluid or some, you know, something like that. Because there is a correlation mm-hmm. between how many uh, older brothers uh, a boy has and huh. his likelihood of being homosexual. Wow. And and also not growing up with those brothers, just how many boys the mother has given birth to previously. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely like some sort of innate thing. But I think there's another expression of what we're calling homosexuality, which is boys who've had a same sex experience in that window of malleability Hmm. who are not. Uh, homosexual in that sort of innate sense, but they do have this, what we might call a fetishistic um, attraction to a same-sex encounter. So it might be a guy, and I I talked about this on Joe Rogan's podcast once and got all these emails from people saying, yeah, that's me. That's how I feel. (laughs) So there's something to it. Where a guy's like, no, I'm into women, I'm married, I'm, you know, got kids, I've got that whole sort of heterosexual thing going on. But every once in a while, I really, you know, just need to have a dude suck my dick or, you know, (laughs) vice versa. Yeah. And it's not, and there's not denial. It's not like neither side of that life is a lie. It's just that there's, so for one guy, it might be, I, you know, I love women in red panties another guy it, i need you know to go down to the truck stop occasionally yeah. so it's uh isn't that wonderful so even what's that isn't that wonderful that there that there can be such a spectrum that you can be interested in so many different things different kinds of people yeah 
I, I would think so. But unfortunately, you know, and I guess this is what you were getting at there is that our schema for categorizing people is so far is so inadequate to the complexities of human experience that we keep yeah. pushing people into these these oversimplified boxes, you know, and it, it it ends up being a denial of their actual experience. Sure. Well, we do that with uh, outside of sexuality as well, don't we? With somebody who's left wing or right wing or whatever they might be, we make assumptions about the rest of their character. I guess we're pattern seekers and we we try to seek a pattern and we go, okay, that fits my box of, okay, that person is gay. Right. And, you know, and it makes us feel good to sort of imagine, okay, it must be because of this and that. And, and we are so complicated. I mean, a, another thing I learned about uh, pedophiles, and I don't want to seem obsessed with the topic. And the other thing is, by the way, for <laughs> any, any listeners, because I find You're in people, the right place. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I did think so. That's why I mentioned it so early. I, I often don't mention it at all on podcasts. But by looking into it, and I suppose you've had a similar experience just from looking into very sort of quirky sexual things, from looking into it for two years now, I've become quite desensitized to talking about it. So I can be at a dinner table with, you know, elderly relatives <laughs> and they'll be like, what are you up to? I'm looking at, I'm looking at pedophilia. What are you doing, auntie, whoever? Um, and sometimes people are really shocked. And, you know, my girlfriend says to me, like, you can't just keep talking to everybody about pedophilia. They haven't been doing the thing. And she's used to it now. And she will have sort of rational calm conversations about it in a way you know but I mean what I was going to say is that uh, I went recently to a small village in the middle of nowhere in Germany and I hung out with for the day a 25 year old woman who is a pedophile and who is attracted to babies that is her thing mm. she yeah it's in, in fan, an infantophilia and that is just so shocking for us. Even for, for me in that moment, even after years, I was like, oh my God, this is this is so heavy. Um, and she's a non-offender, like, like most of the people I met for this book were. Um, but, but yeah, I kept asking, did something happen in your childhood and so on? And just, it, I couldn't get what it was that made her. And I kept, and the other thing is you're skeptical, aren't you? So you go, are you really, are you sure? I think you must be mistaking the maternal instinct for this or that. And she was very offended by that. She was saying, this is my, this is who I am. And you're telling me it's not that, you know, I am attracted to these babies and that's how it is. It's a very strange thing. But then I've seen studies. So the studies suggest that 1% of men um, are exclusive pedophiles. It means they can't form attraction to adults. And it's very sad. Um, the vast majority of them will never offend. It's, it's thought. But other studies have shown that up to 21% of men in, in some surveys have shown some attraction to children. And they're not exclusive, so you don't have to worry about those men. They're very, very unlikely to ever act on those urges. But it's really worrying. And that's why, you know, that's why I wanted to write a book about it, because it's, it's a huge, even if it's just the 1%, that's a huge percentage of the world. I mean, if you think it's a huge number around the world, it's bigger than uh, most armies in countries of, of pedophiles. And we just won't, which is a, a, <laughs> That's a scary some, way to put it. It's a scary, if they ever got together, we'd be in trouble. But no, seriously, though, it's, it's, it's amazing that we just won't talk about it. It's so taboo. And, and if you do talk yeah. about it, you might be able to save a lot of children's lives. So that's the thing. That's the serious side of it. I've always felt that um, sort of instinctively felt that not talking about things empowers them. It gives them cover. You know, you think about all the years, you're probably not even old enough to remember this, but, you know, the first 
three decades of my life, nobody talked about the even possibility that priests were victimizing uh. choir boys. You know what I mean? That would have had you drummed out of town if you had mentioned that. And of course, the effect of that was that it gave them cover to engage in that behavior. Oh, 100%. And then on the other side, the, the non-offenders, they need to be able to speak about it. Because like I say, the, the majority right. of them are not offenders. Um, and they say the, the clinics I spoke to have said there are three major risk factors. So basically, you have different types of pedophiles. There are the ones who are going to offend no matter what. They're probably psychopathic, right? Then you've got on the other side, you've got ones who will never offend. They know they're, they've got morality and they're going, no, this is wrong. I won't do that. There's also a type who go to the clinic all the time. They turn up at the clinic and they say that they're pedophiles, but they're not. They're people with OCD. And there's a type of OCD called POCD, which is pedophile OCD. And it's amazingly common, amazingly common of these people who have no pedophilia but they convince themselves that they do and that they might harm a child or something uh, so the clinic has to run tests on them and they check and they're like you're you're not a pedophile it's it's sad you think you are but we can't help you here anyway so in are they in the looking middle, how do they how do they check that is it genital blood flow they do yeah they do sometimes they do that there are a few different ways but that i think that was the main one they talked about a string uh, uh, you know it's all funny it's strange yeah. to think about but yeah uh the the then there's the ones we can help are the ones in the middle of all of that they're not the psychopaths they're not the empaths they're in the middle and they have huge cognitive biases and they tell themselves you know i don't want to hurt a child but this won't hurt the child maybe so those are the ones that the clinic i spoke to in germany need to get in to the clinic and help them and give them therapy and for anyone listening who's going yeah but i don't care i don't feel sorry for pedophiles that's not the point the point is the victims that they're going to molest if we don't help them so that's much more important than anything to do with our taboos and our you know prud prudence is it prudence or prudishness i can't remember which one's which but so they get them in and there's three major risk factors these people have one of them is getting drunk so they tell them you you should not get drunk like whenever possible do mm. not drink because that's when you're going to give in to your inhibitions um the other one is I've forgotten now but oh yeah being around children and you'd be amazed the amount of these one these guys i've met who they've said i would never offend i would never do this stuff but by the way i've just got a job at a summer camp teaching children and stuff and i'm like what are you doing that's no you're not supposed to be there um and it's, it's actually very scary with the way they start talking about that you see how the human mind is able to create these narratives in them they they really do and they're like no 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 because i'll actually it will make it easier for me if i'm around them more and it's like no the doctors are telling you you know specifically not to do that and then the third thing is stigmatization and that's the same with any kind of criminal action, right? That if you tell people they're bad people, that they're irresponsible and we don't like you and we hope you die and so on, they're just going to go, well, screw you guys, you know, and their cognitive mm. biases are going to take them the other way. If we say to them like, hey, we believe in you and we're going to get you to therapy and like we can help you and you're, you're an important, responsible member of society, they're going to be far less likely to offend and that makes our children safer. So that's why we need to talk a little bit more about them, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's interesting that stigmatization, you know, relating back to the priests, how homosexuality is stigmatized and so many homosexual men become priests as a way uh, to sort of empower yeah. their own denial, I think. And then you end up with these sort of secret societies operating in the Vatican, you know, oh. like it's fucking crazy. Horrible. 
Yeah. yeah. Once people, once you know, once criminals are together, you know, they they tell each other what they're doing isn't wrong, and it's it's horrific. What and I, I think that also goes back to what, what I was saying about the way they a lot of the guys I've met they tell themselves, okay, I'm not someone who's going to offend, but I'm going to become a teacher, a summer camp instructor, a, a lifeguard at a swimming pool. They all had these jobs: football, soccer coach. And I suppose priest or rabbi or imam or whatever uh, religious leader is is, an, is another way to get closer to children. So let's define some terms here. Uh, mm-hmm. Pedophile versus pederast. Yeah, I don't even know. What, pederast. I, I think pedophile, it, I may be wrong, but I think pedophile simply refers to the desire, right? The mm-hmm. philia, the, the attraction to... Um, whereas pederast specifically refers to someone who acts on that desire. Well, they, they, so, they use the word pedocriminal a lot these days. That's that's the word I was uh, familiar with. And I got in trouble because I was getting, and it takes years, as you know, with this kind of investigations and stuff. And as a journalist, it takes years to earn these people's trust, to get access to them. That's the main job. Yeah. If you can do that, you've got the story. So I took years and I was so careful all the time to sort of you know, get that line right between enabling them, which you don't want to do. You don't want to be like, yeah, man, you go do your thing, you know, because that's not right. Uh, but also losing their trust. You don't want to do that either. So you're trying to sort of play that, play both sides almost or, or neither side, I suppose. And I, I had access to this uh, non-offender pedophile message board, you know, so there's nothing like pictures or anything like that. I never saw anything like that. <laughs> These are just guys who help each other. And they tell each other like, hey, you're going to be okay. And there's a lot of talk of, you know, you can imagine there's a lot of talk of suicide and things like that. And they're all going, no, 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 you're going to be okay. Oh, but I had these horrible thoughts. Yeah, but we'll help you. So, you know, and I got friendly, you know, with these people, you know, met some of them. And I, one day that there's a, there was a girl called Madeline McCann, who was very famous in the UK. She was a missing yeah. child went missing years ago it was devastating and I, for in whatever Portugal. reason exactly for, for whatever for a variety of reasons it was more I mean children go missing every day don't they but this one I guess the parents were sort of middle upper class um, doctors and things like that and she was particularly sweet looking and it was it sort of struck a chord with a lot of people in England rightly or wrongly and just like last year uh, it came out that it, it was believed that a German man had been responsible, a guy who was in prison. And I think he's still uh, the number one suspect um, that he's in prison at the moment. So I went to this message board and I was in a rush because I was like, wow, that's really fascinating. And I can be the journalist who, who finds out about him. That would be a huge story for me in, back in the UK. So I just wasn't thinking. And I went on the message board and I said, hey, guys, does anyone here know um, this guy? Have you met this guy? Do you know anything about him? Can anyone share any information with me about this guy? Uh, and, and when I did that, I referred to him as a pedophile or pedophile. And I left it for a few days, went back and looked at the replies. There were like 100 replies. Usually there's one or two. And they were going berserk, going, how dare you call that guy a pedophile? He's a pedocriminal we're pedophiles he's a pedocriminal we would never associate with someone like that how can you even think that and I was just like I'm so sorry I'm so sorry guys I didn't know I just don't know and they said well you should you're a gen you know I lost a lot of them yeah but it seems that pedocriminal is a subset of pedophile you know sure. to be fair I mean <laughs> I, needed I understand you in my their corner. sensitivity <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly um but you know, on on this this thread of defining terms, <clears throat> earlier you referred to pedophiles as, as you know adults who are sexually attracted to children. 
children is a complicated concept, right? What what because that varies by country, right? With age of consent. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what definitions are you working with? Is it is it uh, different in every culture, or is there a general definition where someone can be considered a pedophile? Yeah, I think uh, I think I'm right in saying that if a child has gone through puberty, then we're talking about a hebophile. Um, and there have been loads and loads throughout history. I, th- I think I'm right, and I, I, I can't slander him because he's dead, but I think, was it J.D. Salinger was one of them? I don't know. <laughs> he, he can't sue me, can he? But maybe his estate can. But I think it's not something you want to be accused of if it's not true. But he, I think right. he was what... Anyway, loads and loads of people back in the day. And it was some... Oh, all the rock stars back in the 60s. You know, the baby groupies. The Beatles. And, she was only 16, if you know what I mean. I mean, well, I think in the, we know in what the, he means. <laughs> in, the, in the UK, I mean, 16 is fine. I mean, I mean, legally, Paul McCartney, even now, could sleep with a 16-year-old. But there wasn't... Oh, what's the guy? Uh, the passenger... Oh, I forgot his name right now. He wrote, I am the passenger. And I ride and I ride. I take through the city back sign. Iggy Pop. Oh. He, he he's sung, guilty of everything. Yeah, well, he sung about a 13-year-old girl. He sung a oh, song really? about a 16-year-old a girl. And I think he did get off with, with her. I think something happened. They were called the baby groupies. So that was a big part of this book mm. I was researching. The Rolling Stones. Uh, they were all just, you know, at it the whole time. So those are what we'd call hebophiles or hebophiles. And then, yeah, prepubescent. And what the pedophile community talk about is uh, the AOA, which is the age of attraction. So it's completely different for each one. And it's such a strange world. They introduce each other a little bit. Like, I don't know if you remember the AOL time. and Everyone was saying ASL. You know, what's your ASL? Mm. Age, sex, location. Age, sex, location. Yeah. And this was, now they go like, hi, my AOA is you know, 11 years old and female or male or whatever. That's how they all talk to each other. It's a whole bizarre world. It is bizarre because I don't understand how the numerical qualification makes sense because, you know, 11, there are so many different uh, body types and, and, you know, 11-year-olds aren't all the same, just as no other age group is all the same. But who am I to question their categorizations? Um, I I also saw your your video about um, you know sort of tangentially related the the exorcism hmm. that uh, is an amazing piece of film man that oh thank that you was really well done oh cheers yeah yeah that was uh, can you just give some background on that and how how you got involved in that. Yeah, so it was similar to, you know, moving to Berlin. This was moving to Buenos Aires. And the first thing I was thinking was, okay, what can I find that's controversial? And this was more towards the beginning of my career. Um, And I did a few things, you know, looking for UFOs for some HBO things, some very small thing that they did and uh, infidelity and porn, all that kind of stuff, you know, subcultures, things that those are the things I wake up for in the morning, like, oh, weird stuff. And I think you can relate to that. But um, (laughs) yes. I used to see on TV and radio a lot. I'd been there a year or so at this point in Argentina. They kept having this exorcist on and they'd be talking with him in a way. We don't have TV channels like this in the UK uh, that would take someone like him seriously. But he would get up on the stage and say, so, um, let's just knock, knock the microphone of my nose. They'd say, 
So, uh, is Halloween coming up? Uh, Padre Manuel, that's his name. Padre Manuel, uh, tell us what we should do to ward off some demons. And he'd be like, well, with this sort of <laughs> smug face, he'd be like, well, uh, we need to have like three carrots and some olive oil on some toast. And I don't think it was exactly that, but I'm just, I'm just sort of looking around my room and thinking what well, I'd fancy a bit of toast. But it was just mad ingredients for food for some reason. And it was all just, just like that will stop the devil. So I was at this point getting a bit annoyed by him i would hear him on the radio in the taxi i would hear him everywhere i got in touch with the bbc who i hadn't done anything with at that time and i said can i make this film for you you know and they said no because of course they said no because i'd never made anything for them uh they they liked the idea the exorcist thing was quite a cool fun idea but also uh, it's probably the same in the states most tv channels are interested in stuff in their own country um at a push we can get like american stuff published yeah broadcast australian but something in Argentina, yeah, difficult. But I just thought, okay, this yeah. is screw it. I have to, I have to get closer to this guy. If I never make a film, at least I've hung around him. This, this in my mind, you know, probably a charlatan. Um, so a friend of mine came out, and we just filmed it, the two of us, and that's what gives it, I think, a very um, rough and ready look. It's like Gonzo journalism, like the old days. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. guess that, you know Louis Thoreau in, in England does that kind of thing. Um, he used to. And um, uh, Michael Moore, used to, you know, he did some of that stuff, but much more yeah. political. Uh, and I love that. Like, anything can happen. You know, the camera suddenly turns and a weird thing happens. So I got in touch with The Exorcist. I mentioned the BBC. I was like, I'm trying to sell it to the BBC. You never know. And from then on, I was like the BBC guy in his mind. I, I had no connection right. to the BBC, but he was just like, ah, like, senor BBC. I was like, yeah. Um, so... <laughs> He's just like emailing all the time. You know, this it's so funny to see it. Like, my gracious lords, BBC man. It was all like this stuff. Come come down and, you know. So I started hanging out with him and we're filming him and we're doing... Ex- How far do you want me to go, by the way? Have I gone too... Am I going too far in the explanation of the film? No, I, I just... I encourage people to go and watch it. It's, it's on your mm. webpage for free, right? So mm. anyone can see it. BBC YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube, uh, oh, Exorcism, okay. The Battle for Young Minds, they, that's what that's the title they gave it. He, he lost his mind with me in the end. Uh, he went crazy at me and locks me in like a closet um, because he thought I was yeah. suggesting yeah, he, that he was, he was uh, kissing one of the young women he had exorcised. So I thought he was going to kill me. Which he was. <laughs> we think so. <laughs> It sure looked that way to me. Yeah, yeah, that's that's funny. So he sort of saw you as a way to increase his visibility and appeal to his vanity. Yeah, and uh, he kind of lost his shit when when it became clear that you had your own agenda and your own perspective on things. (laughs) It became a a naughty vicar scandal instead of like this big exorcist thing. I mean, we did exorcisms and they were scary as, as. as hell you know they were really scary to watch i can't think of another moment in my life where i've seen somebody's mind uh just dissolve in front of my eyes like that you know it's in the the documentary this was like a minute you know we we condensed it but i was standing over a woman waving bells at her pretending that i believed this would help exorcise her and you know fully aware this is a woman having a mental breakdown and it's highly inappropriate. I started to realize at that point it was inappropriate for me to be sort of doing the bells in jest. And I, from after the first exorcism, I, I no longer did that because I thought, wow, th- this is much more serious than I thought. This is, this is really, really a scary trip 
into the the you know the abyss of the mind it's a it's a yeah there's nothing quite like an exorcism that i've ever seen have you ever been around uh, hypnosis it's, uh, yeah, well, I've interviewed a, a hypnotist on my podcast, and he sort of did some stuff to sort of like you know on the camera to me, and yeah, it's it's all the same stuff. It's it's just exactly the same thing, I think. Yeah, when you read about the history of um, mesmer and the whole you know the seances and all that kind yeah. of stuff, it it there's a common thread running through there. I think people are very a certain kind of person is very um, eager to let go. And uh, yeah. if you give them a structure and an excuse, all sorts of interesting things can happen. I'm actually in a town right now, um, interesting town with a lot of uh, sort of cult vibe going on. There was a, mm. a cult here recently uh, that got in the uh, international media because the, the sort of leader of the cult um, died and they transported her body around and um, bestowed it with um, Christmas lights and <laughs> glitter and, and all this stuff. And they did just, you know, carted this body around for a few months and then uh, it got exposed and it was like, holy shit, what's going on here? This is just a couple miles from where I'm sitting right now. Yeah, people are... Do you think there's this kind of extreme behavior is on the rise or does it just seem that way because there are people like you who are you know using new technology to bring it to our attention yeah i i think well exorcism itself is on the rise um and and that's it's it's almost like a cycle it's like okay we're bringing it to the attention now of people and then people like you know organizations like the vatican are starting to go oh okay you know the exorcism is back the film had a huge impact my, my exorcist you know the one i interviewed he used to play the music tubular bells from the exorcism film in his masses and he had posters of the exorcist film all around his uh, walls of his church with his face superimposed onto that of the main characters so he you know if the exorcist film hadn't come out i presume he wouldn't be doing it mm. exorcism was massive apparently and, and somebody a historian might be listening and think i'm wrong about this but i think it was big like a couple thousand years ago and then it completely went away and it started to come back in the last couple hundred years and then that film really brought it back in a big way so now there's like people doing exorcisms at the vatican by phone and like it's getting in with modern technology now it's zoom uh, exorcism I, I honestly that is happening there are zoom exorcisms yeah. happening right now and I, I, it must look horrific and ridiculous as for, i mean the, the the women that he was getting the exorcist he was finding them they were mostly women at least when we were there they were all women and he was finding these women in uh, a, a psychiatric ward and they were there basically living there and spending their ten spending their teenage years there as um you know with schizophrenia obsessive compulsive disorder intrusive thoughts bulimia anorexia lots of different mental health issues and it makes sense that exorcism became a thing over the years over the centuries um because if you look at the way somebody is supposed to act when they are possessed it does mirror certain mental illnesses that we do know about today and we give them labels but hundreds of years ago they wouldn't have had them so this a doctor at the psychiatric ward i spoke to said that this is happening all the time at least in that sort of impoverished part of the suburbs of buenos aires that 
various shamans and magic people and exorcists were coming and telling these patients who are in an impoverished area without real education telling them that you know you've got depression you've got this you've got that um and they're telling them we've got a quick fix this is your quick fix and and we do live you're right we live in the age you know today of like the quick fix of the internet of this kind of thing and i think um everybody's desperate for that at the end of the day i mean what's the alternative it's not it's not much better i could say to these women no no you should go and see a psychiatrist for the next 20 years that would be better but it's it's still not going to be easy it's going to be horrible well and and who's to say it would be better you know some of these shamanic practices and and i think you even said in your film that most of these women did seem happier and healthier after Mm. the exorcism yeah, that that was good for us as well. But as a documentary maker, you always hope for the most interesting thing to happen. It certainly wouldn't have been interesting that I go in and like, oh, this is a stupid practice. And then, yeah, it was a stupid practice, right? It is it is a stupid practice, by the way. But but people got better. Um, and, and that is the placebo. That's the power of the mind. It can take you to extraordinary right. places. And the problem is, as, as these doctors explained to me, a year or two or three later, they go back to where they were, but they also have this extremely traumatic experience playing on their mind, and they've had years where they didn't see a psychiatrist, so it's it can be quite dangerous. Yeah. So how did you get into this? Is Did your fascination with these fringe phenomena precede journalism, or did you go into journalism and then uh, go toward these things because it's interesting and, and a good way to get... Uh, you know, a foothold in in the industry. I was always interested in that stuff. And it was, you know, when I was a teenager, friends of mine might have been interested in the news or something like that. Uh, Later, as I started to become a journalist, because I wanted to meet people who thought differently from me. I've always been, that's what's fascinated me more than anything. It wasn't necessarily the fringe stuff. It was the idea like, hang on, that person has mostly the same sort of genetics that I do and this, you know, okay, different upbringing, fine. But why is their belief so different from mine? Why are we such different people? I have to find out why. Um, Instead of judging them, instead of going, what an idiot these people are, I wanted to know. So I then got a foothold in journalism, uh, got the certificates and stuff you need in the UK. And it was very important for me as well to learn languages because all the stuff I'd seen where different documentary makers went abroad, they used translators. So for example, the Mm. argument we have at the end with The Exorcist where he chucks me in a room and you know that made our whole documentary, I think. And we couldn't have had that if we didn't speak the other languages. So it was just always a case of of that. And I think you, you come back to earth afterwards when you've battled an exorcist or whatever, you come back to Europe and you've got everybody saying like, uh, you know, oh, can you believe that so-and-so voted Trump or so-and-so voted Biden or someone trans this and BLM? I, you know, that stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, I absolutely can believe that because I've literally just stood with somebody for three weeks who believes that there are demons inside them, you know? And that that's a, what an adrenaline uh spark that is you know to be out there in that moment and to uh to be in these weird situations you've only you've only got a you know you've got one life don't you so uh yeah that's what it is it's the excitement and the adrenaline Hmm. so what are you doing so you're in berlin now Hmm. just because of this project or how does that work do you go where the project is or do you go somewhere you want to live and then find the project 
this was a case of yeah live and where i wanted to learn the language and where my girlfriend was happy to move to as well and then when, once we got here it was like okay what's interesting about berlin and the first thing is you're looking into are like neo-nazis uh communists right. as well and uh the soviet stuff and the wall the berlin wall um and it, it you know the pedophile stuff interested me in the end um but i've got you know i, I live from my podcast um and i interview strange and bizarre and wonderful people on that so that's that's sort of my that's my main job that's my ambition and that's what you know i love doing that and then every now and then i think you know what i'm going to go out and do something and then see if i can sell it to the bbc or see if i can write a book about it afterwards that kind of thing right is there something about german culture that lends itself to sexual perversion mm, yeah <laughs> yes they it's a, it's a hard one because you you never want to go on a podcast with a huge listening and generalize about a whole country of people right but <laughs> sure you do <laughs> sure you do because <laughs> i mean german porn is so weird mm. you know i i would say like i mean I, again we're just a couple of guys talking here right we're sure. not we're not uh, this is not expert opinion but it seems to me german and japanese culture are very uh uh what's the word like they they ge- porn they generate mm-hmm. perversion and both of them are extremely controlled yes regimented societies yeah. And so it's, you know, my operating theory is that when you repress something, it comes out in a a more elaborate, um, you know, possibly destructive, corrosive form. Not necessarily. For example, in, in Japanese societies, all sorts of bizarre perversion, but I don't think it's necessarily corrosive. Um, mm. You know, all the octopus porn and stuff. I mean, what's up with that? There's some weird shit going on. <laughs> I didn't, octopus porn. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's this whole thing in, in Japanese sexuality. All these um, comic books where women are being raped by an octopus. Wow. It's like got, you know, eight arms holding her. It's, you know, impossibility of escape. And, uh, and there's a lot of weird shit going on in Japanese sexuality. Um, but it seems to me, and this is my bias, that that kind of repression sort of turbocharges the um, the expression of the energy, almost like an internal combustion engine or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that, that might be why, you know, heavy metal is so popular in Scandinavia. Mm. Right? Right. The similar right. thing, just like, you know, when... Most of the time, they're so composed, and so I've I found uh, German people to be the, the most, and I'm careful when I say this, but the most different to me that I've met. And so I've spent the last twelve years oh. living in different countries, and you know, Brazil, Colombia, Argentina, France, um, and and now here, and in all those other countries, I just it, it's a very simple thing, right? And it's the same in the states, same in the UK for me. I can go up to people and go like, hey. How's it going? That doesn't, that's not a thing here. That is not a, you say, hey, how's it going? They, they will look a bit like, what, what, what do you mean? And I'm like, oh, just, how's it going? You all right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I never said there was a problem. And you're like, okay. <laughs> you know, my, my first couple of days here was, 
it was a baptism of, of, of fire coming here, you know, because also the language, the language is horrific. It is horrific. Oh, man. And you've yeah. got to know about, like, all the different, like, dative or dative and the, the different ways. Accusative. Oh. Yeah. Dude, horrific. I studied German for three years. It was a total waste of time. Oh, it's so hard and it's horrible. And but you learn it, and they don't care. You know, they should be happy you're learning it because you know they're probably they probably speak English, right? They should be happy you're learning their language. They don't care. And I remember like it was. It's it's not even the funniest story or anything, but it's just like it sums up my time here. One of the first couple of days, I was with my girlfriend. We didn't know anyone. We were feeling a little bit uh, vulnerable, maybe just walking around in the snow, like freezing, couldn't find anywhere to eat, and we popped into this restaurant and it looked like a nice little you know uh, beer place you know real brow house as they say in germany uh and i thought okay this would be nice we'll get some food here and stuff and i said to the 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 hostess or or what the matron what do you call the person who stands behind like a podium and lets you in to the restaurant oh yeah yeah hostess i think yeah okay oh yeah i I said you know uh, can we eat here and then she said um no, there's no, there's no room here, right? And I just said, okay, well, do you, we're freezing cold. We haven't eaten all day. We're lost. Do you have any recommendations? And she says, yeah, book next time. <laughs> and, and that was wow. like, yeah, okay, we're in Germany. Like that is, yeah. <laughs> in America, it's the opposite, you know? And they might, be, they might be saying stuff behind your back, the same in the UK, right? You go True. in, do you have any recommendations? Why, sure. <laughs> here's a map and here's this. You know, Germany cold cold but mm. that's how they like it and 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 yeah you're you're absolutely right to say i think that must that has to come out in some sort of you know crazy way as it probably does in uh porn yeah yeah it seems like well i don't know now that i'm thinking of it i was gonna say it seems like the german uh sort of expression is very much about power and you know, chains and whips and all that kind of S&M stuff. But then the UK is sort of famous for that, too. Like everybody's getting spanked at public school and fucking a pig's head and all that kind of shit. I mean, you guys are pretty sick, too. That comes from like a, that's like the upper echelons, isn't it? I think the Germans you're talking about are like the the media, you know, just the middle classes or whatever. Uh, Ah, right. So it's not restricted to the upper class. Yeah, it's a very, there was, who was it? It was Oswald Mosley's son, I think it was, Max Mosley, Max Mosley. Somebody, who, ah, there was a politician who was caught uh, at one of these parties uh, with oh, German yeah, in uniforms the, in the SS uniform, yeah, right. Yeah. It was, but what yeah. what happened was this. I think it was the Sun. It was one of the newspapers reported it as like, oh, he's in a big, you know, issue. Here he is with with Nazis, and he said, well, look, you got the picture, but the, they they were not Nazi uniforms. These were tip, normal German soldier uniforms. These were not. So he sued them and he won a libel claim against the oh. Sun because they weren't Nazis. They were German soldiers. Oh, they weren't members of the Nazi party per se. Yeah, <laughs> yeah UK slander laws are, uh, are are very different from American, I think. Maybe, maybe. Look, if you yeah. say it's Nazis, you're implying something very different. Although we can imagine, you know, what he really was getting off on thinking about the German soldiers, but we don't know. Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, what's the name of your podcast? On the Edge with Andrew Gold on the edge and uh tell us about some some of the notable guests that you've had that will draw listeners into your orbit 
Well, the most controversial one, not to not to go back to the same topic, was I did have a pedophile on uh, episode six. Um, he was an eighteen-year-old who um, uh, he was the he's the class president or head boy of his school, um, and he talked about that and what it's like and hanging out with the children and stuff. It's a bit creepy. So a lot of people have listened to all the episodes except that one because they're like, I can't listen to that one, and that's fair enough. Mm. I, I had one of my my fa- probably my favorite one was. Um, I spoke to one of the survivors of the Andes plane crash in Chile and um, Argentina, um, and he he had to eat his friends when you know once they landed and he, he was stuck was there this for the, three months. The soccer team that went down? Yeah, rugby. They were rugby. Oh, rugby team. Okay, right. Yeah, that's that a long one. time ago. He he must be an old guy by now. He's about seventy three, I think. Yeah. Uh, it just the story. It's the only time I've edited a podcast. Uh, thinking like, uh, you know, uh, crying. I was crying. It was. It was. It was so emotional. It, it tends the stuff that makes you cry tends to be the uplifting part. The part where his wife, after three months, or his his fiance, she was at the time, um, hears on the radio. They, they they just called out. You know, everyone in Uruguay was listening on the radio when they'd found them, and they knew that only twenty of them out of like fifty or so had survived. And they just read a list of names. And just imagine if it's your loved one, and you're listening, and you, you're getting closer and closer to the end of the list, and mm. you don't hear your loved one's name, or you do right at the end. His name was the second from last, so you can imagine just the euphoria and the fear. So I spoke to, usually it's an interview podcast, uh, much like your own, but in that particular time, he got tired of speaking English and he, yeah, he's, he's quite an old boy now, you know, he's in his 70s. So um, I went to Spanish and I thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this because we need to, you know, and afterwards mm. I think I got an Argentine person, a friend of mine to do a voiceover over him, to dub over him at times. And I brought in some music. I did some interviews with other people and I made it into kind of a documentary episode. Mm. And it's just my favorite one ever. But uh, yeah, that's Why crazy. did he agree to do mm. the interview with you? Well, he's not ashamed. He's very proud of, of what happened because they had no choice. Um, and I, I don't know. I saw an article about him. He had a book out as well, I should say, actually. Uh, uh, that's okay. that's probably the, the main part. He, from his side of the story, so I read that, then interviewed him, and it was just, uh, yeah, pleasure to speak to someone who, who, that's a huge part of our history. Everybody knows about that that plane crash. It's the worst thing I've ever heard of, ever, their, their experience. Yeah. But that's him. Did that give you, mm. give you any insights into... Or, or do any of these interviews and, and the research that you do, how it, does it change your sense of self and your own capacities? Well, I know I, I'd like to say I couldn't do that, but you don't have a choice, do you? Like, I, I don't mean I wouldn't have eaten human flesh. I just mean I feel I couldn't have survived the first day out of frozen to death. Um, I think it must, be the, it must be the same for you and any sort of interviewer in, the, in this sense that it, it opens your horizons and it, it probably makes you less judgmental as a person. I've had people who are fairly right wing on the podcast. Someone like, I'm thinking of Americans like James Lindsay, um, you know, these anti-woke people. And then some people who are quite left wing. And, you know, most people, when you sit and have a conversation with them, they're really quite nice people. One of the people I interviewed in Argentina, there's a documentary I've just made about abortion uh, in this in Argentina. It was before I left there, and that's currently at festivals, going around the festival circuit. And 
I didn't want to do sort of a straight documentary about abortion because although it's a very important topic, it could be quite, you know, straight, quite... Uh, basically, I followed somebody who's known out there as the crazy baby lady, um, Mariana mm. Rodriguez Varela. She's the daughter of uh, somebody who was a big part of the dictatorship in Argentina 20, 30 years ago. And she's really extreme. And she turns up when people are trying to get abortion, she turns up with plastic fetuses and throws them at them and screams at them and stuff. So she's just very, very extreme. And I personally, and I have, I have no judgment of other people, but I've always sided on the pro-choice side. And I just think, you know, liberal and let people do what they want. And so it was interesting for me to hang out with someone like her. And I went on the school run with her and we went and picked up her kids. We hung out at her house and she was just so lovely. She was divine and she treated us so nicely. And by the end of it, I found myself really liking her. And it really changed, you know, I think if I'd heard about her in the news and just seen crazy baby ladies screaming at kids or screaming at young girls trying to get, but actually being with her, I felt um, affection for her. And unfortunately, at the end, I had to ask her a few questions she didn't like. And much like with The Exorcist, we fell out and um, she won't talk to me now. She hates me. But and that's part of the job. Sometimes you have to push people. You don't always want to. But uh, yeah, all of that kind of speaking to people who are just totally on different sides to you. And then, I, yeah, I, I see on Twitter now, I see friends of mine and they're all arguing over these tiny, tiny differences um, you know, people who are both left wing, but one is slightly more tr pro trans or slightly more this or that. And you just think there are so much bigger d dis uh, discrepancies between opinions that you, you know, you're not even looking at the people who are really far away from you. You're arguing with people who are just like you, which is what we do. So I think that's, yeah. I mean, would you feel the same way about, about your own experience talking to lots of different people and all sorts of uh, sides of the spectrum? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, the podcast is very um, reminiscent of when I hitchhiked a lot when I was young, you know, where you never know who who's picking you up, but you're, yeah. you start out with a sense of gratitude that they stopped, <laughs> um, you know, so even if it's some Christian fundamentalist whose agenda is to convert me I don't really give a shit as long as I'm not standing in the rain, you know, and we're getting closer <laughs> to my destination. Um, there was something about that that I really enjoyed and, and gave me a sense of, uh, I don't know, accomplishment of just being able to get into anyone's car and try to find the common humanity, you know. And in, and in um, this case, it's their head. You're getting into anyone's head. Yeah, and just... I don't know. I mean, you know, I've done almost 500 episodes now. Uh, I was just looking last night. It's like nine years or something since I started doing this. And um, it's very, you know, I've had all sorts of different experiences, as you can imagine. But I think my favorites are the ones where, um, you know, it's someone who I meet by chance who has no public profile, no sense of themselves as a particularly interesting person, but something about them strikes me and I convince them to do this. And in the process of talking, they start to realize how they look, you know what I mean? Like how yeah. they uh, appear to others and then, and they, they have a, an appreciation for themselves that they didn't have before. Those are, those are the, experiences that are for me the most gratifying where 
You know, it must be like a great portrait photographer or something who takes a photo of someone that makes them look like really um, illuminates their beauty in a way that the subject had never seen. And then they look at the photo or the painting and like, oh, my God, I'm not horrible. I'm actually there's something beautiful there. You know, like that's what I love doing with it. And yeah. it's it's rare. You know, it's it's not an easy thing to do. And it, it's actually something that I don't even think can be done intentionally. It just sort of happens. Mm. But a, a big part of it is what you've been talking about, this lack of judgment, you know, where you just say, I want to hear your story. I think it's really interesting. And, you know, and then it just goes from there with with these experiences that you've had, particularly um, you're much more focused on the edge, obviously, than than I am. Um, what's your feeling about evil? Mm. Is Does evil exist or is evil just, you know, the baby lady is doing what she thinks is right. She's bringing a lot of pain to people, but she thinks she's doing the right thing, right? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And that's what that taught me. And actually, that was filmed a couple of years ago. And as I get older, and I, you know, you change as you get older, don't you? And you know, 18 year olds are generally very judgmental. I was as an 18 year old, uh, and very right on and righteous. And not just lefties, we think of them as big lefties, don't we? But on the right as well, there was a statistic about the Vietnam War. And I think we think of the young Americans being very, very anti-war. But apparently, there were just as many uh, pro-war young people because young people go one way or the other and they judge and i think part of getting older um is is learning not to judge so much i'm only 32 now and i have very different thoughts to what i had when i was 22 and i'd be disappointed if i don't have very different thoughts when i'm 42 and then 52 because otherwise what are you doing with your life you know um <laughs> you've got to be learning and changing and adapting you have to be if your experiences don't do that to you then yeah, it's just what is anything you know so the crazy baby lady was one of the first people oh yeah i was saying i look back on it and i made a few judgmental i said a few judgmental things to her that i regret saying but i got caught up in the excitement of what was a movement to in my mind give women more civil liberties or whatever oh fucking hell mate, someone's calling me sorry how do i turn it off i was turn it off it's on silent by the way but it's just breaking through i'm just going to turn my phone off all right so we're not rude. hearing anything okay. don't worry about it I've turned it off. When I put my phone on silent, if somebody calls on WhatsApp, it's still, if they do it twice in a minute, it still comes through. So there's nothing, I've just turned it <laughs> off now. Um, Crazy Baby Lady was one of the first times I sort of thought really hard about that. And that is a realization a lot of people have as they get older, right? And, you know, you start looking back and then, you know, even the Nazis, if we think about pure evil. And I think I have a little bit, I'd like to think I have a slightly more liberty to talk about it being Jewish myself. I, do, I wouldn't want anyone to think that I'm downplaying the, the atrocities of, of the Nazis who did evil things. Um, and some of them were evil. 1% of people are psychopaths. And I've interviewed a few of them on the podcast. That, uh, that neuroscientist, Dr. James Fallon, do you know of him? Mm -hmm. He... he He's just a neuroscientist, and he was looking into psychopathy. Studied it his whole life, and oh, you know he the found story. Out that he was, <laughs> yeah. Amazing. yeah. One of the scans was like he was like looking at a scan, and he was like, "Oh my god, whose is this? We need to get this person off the streets. This is horrific." <laughs> and the his the people working with him were like, "That's yours." And he was like, "You're you're fucking me. Get out of here." And he was like, "No, no, that yeah. is your brain." And he's a psychopath. He was on my podcast. It was a great fun talking to him because I, I love talking to those people and saying like. 
if I if somebody came in the room now and slit open my throat, right, tortured me to death, how would you feel? And they're like, be okay. It's <laughs> just mad. Really? Is that what he said? He said like. There's emotional empathy and there's cognitive empathy. And his cognitive empathy would kick into gear and he would say, which I think he sees as like a moral framework. And it's just like something he invents and he says, these are the rules I'm going to live by. The other the other psychopath right. I had on my podcast was somebody called Emmy Thomas, who wrote uh, Confessions of a Sociopath. And she is a Mormon, right? Which is so strange because you just don't think of these people being religious psychopaths. But she says she uses Mormonism, again, as a moral th framework. She likes the moral framework of Mormonism for whatever reason. And I asked them both that question and she sort of avoided it a bit. And she was just like, Andrew, you, you don't quite understand. You know, just, she just wasn't interested in anything. He said he, James Fallon said he would call the police, but he would have a sort of mild curiosity. He would sort of watch and he'd be mildly curious and he'd call the police and say, yeah, pop over to Andrew's house, wherever he lives. But that, it wouldn't get him on an emotional level. But, oh, but going back to evil, oh, sorry, did you want to say something? Sorry, I've just, I'm just blabbing. No, on. no, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, no, just, just psychopaths, 1% of society, it's on a spectrum, so let's say 2%. The entirety of Germany were going around putting Jews in gas chambers and that wasn't just uh, because they would be killed if, if not other. It, it was too big. The scale was too big. Obviously, if you're going to get a gun to your head or you have to kill someone else, you know, we can all sort of understand that. Um, but the way, the aggression, the, the stories you hear of, of the way people were treated, um, it's ideological, right? And it's uh, a Scientologist I had on my podcast called John Atak. He, he talks of weaponizing empaths or weaponized empaths. And it's just getting people who are super empathetic and getting them to do your bidding if you tell them the right narrative. And then they will just go for that ideology. So the Nazis were told a lot of stuff about eugenics. They were told a lot of stuff about the bad guys who were the Jews or people of color or, um, uh, you know, gay people. Gypsies. Gypsies. Homosexuals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they were told, these are the bad guys. You're the good guys. And the same thing happened on the left at the same time in, in Soviet Russia. So, yeah. you know, the, these people have more money than you on their farms and stuff. They were just farmers who happened to be slightly more successful. Burn down their farms. And you do it because you think you're good. And, and, it, and it makes me now, when you think about this and when you end up interviewing all these people, you go on Twitter and you see such anger with people who are so sure they're righteous. And I guess you get to a point where you think, I never know if I'm right or not. Like, I'm never, I'm just, all I know is I don't want to ever act like I'm that sure of anything that's the because historically that seems to be the pattern it's the people who are that sure of themselves that they're right and the other people are wrong that's the bad side of history maybe yeah you're familiar with um stanley milgram's experiments uh, oh, yes. where he convinced people that they were shocking other people right turning up the current yeah. um there's an interesting sort of scandal around that that I wrote about in Civilized to Death, where it turned out that the way that was reported was bullshit, yeah. that most of the people refused to participate in the study. Most of the people that he said, now turn up the, for people who aren't familiar with this, he, he had subjects um, convinced that they were shocking other people and the people that they were shocking were actors they were pretending they were being shocked 
and he wanted to see how high they would turn up the current, uh, how much pain they would inflict on these people when they were told to do so. And that was reported, I think it was in the 50s when this study was done. And it was reported that virtually all the people agreed to inflict torture on other people, which was a which was a fucking lie, because most of the people, when they got into this situation, said, fuck you, I'm not going to shock that other person and got up and walked out. They weren't included in the study. So when he reported 98 percent of the people agreed to do it, they didn't include the 50, 60 percent of the people who got up and walked out. Um, But in any case, when I, you know, went back and looked at the studies again, it seemed to me that what it it was a study of people's willingness to do what they were told by an authority figure. And so the real dangerous people were the ones who always did their fucking homework and did what they were told and showed up on time. They're the rule followers. Those are the dangerous people, not because they're psychopaths or because they're evil people, just because they do what they're told. And so often the authority figures are telling us to do things that are horrible. And so Mm -hmm. I guess that's why I, I have much more sort of empathy and trust in rule breakers than i do in rule followers you know well, you're, it's, you're, it's, you're it's not alone strange. you're not alone in that i, I was doing because another book i'm writing at the moment is about the science of secrets and and why we keep them and why we tell them to people um why we you know and what it does to us keeping a secret and uh it's been shown that the people we trust and tell our secrets to are not polite people we don't tell polite people. We tell, as you say, rule breakers and people like that because we know polite people might turn us in to someone else. Think of, I mean, I'm, I'm in Berlin right now. You think of the Stasi, a very polite person. Yeah. They also might judge you. They might not relate to you. We do instinctively trust, as you say, rule breakers. Um, and, and they do just, you know, if you're at a party, you want to get on with the rule breaker a little bit, as long as, as, long as it doesn't go too far, as long as they're not like murdering people. The ones yeah. who stick to the rules, yeah, I don't, I don't like that at all. The safetyism and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think about this with hippies a lot. You know, these sort of people cruising around with, you know, white people with dreadlocks and didgeridoo players. It's like this sort of self-proclaimed, like, look at me, I'm a hippie. Like. I keep, you know, I often think like you don't really understand Hi- being a hippie meant not following the crowd. And what <laughs> you're doing is following the crowd. And if you were, you know, if you were 20 years old in 1934 in Germany, you'd be a brown shirt or you'd be, you know, you'd be following that crowd. Yes. Following this crowd doesn't make you cool. You're still following a crowd, you know. It's a strange yeah, thing. Yeah. Maybe it's all about conformity yeah. and, and non-conformity. It's so frustrating. And what you're saying, you're like, I mean, you're preaching to the choir here because I, I, I love what you're saying. And I, I've been thinking about that. I'm, I'm reading a book by Will Storr called The Status Game. He's coming on the podcast next week. And again, it's all so much is about status. Um, and it, it had to be back in tribal times, right? You know, uh, I think it was, what is it? I think we've, between uh, hunter-gatherer time and now, there's been 500 generations of human. During the hunter-gatherer time, there were 100,000 
right? That it's a huge amount of time we spent in tribes. So obviously we are very tribal. And that's that's all that is. If you're set, you, you follow a certain set of rules because you think it makes you the good person. Um, and I know so many people, and we all do, who are on Twitter, who have these, what we would call maybe woke views, and they're so sure of themselves. And they're, you know, but they're not the rule breakers because they're just saying the same stuff as what the BBC is saying. Uh, they're not the, the ones right now who are the rule breakers, whether they're right or wrong, and I'm definitely not about to say either way, are the ones who are maybe saying, hang on, this trans stuff or this pronoun stuff or any of that, just calling it into question. Those are the rule breakers right now. Yeah, okay, Joe Rogan can talk about that, right? But the BBC couldn't. They could not. Mm. And they actively last week went about banning people on their Twitter uh, profile, on the official BBC one, anybody who, who said sex is real. Now, I, I, I like the BBC. I love the BBC. They're, they're amazing. They've done so much amazing stuff. But they are also, they are the sign of the authority. So if you find your views aligned with theirs, doesn't mean you're a bad person or anything's wrong or anything like that. It just means you are not one of the rule breakers that you might think you are. You, we, we all had that thing, you know, in history lessons when we were... When I was 15, you know, I used to I used to hear about slavery and hear about the Nazis and imagine, God, if I was back there, imagine what I would do. Right. No, no, I wouldn't. I'd be scared out of my mind. And I probably would be convinced of a totally different ideology, you know. So it's the people who are not aware of that that scare me. Well, maybe, maybe you're underestimating yourself, right? Because if you're... It sounds like your motivation is to bring attention and compassion and insight to the rule breakers, right? That's that those are the people on the edge. Mm. And to you know I you know it it's it's the only thing that applies some breaks to these crazy historical pendulum swings are the people who are saying, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe <laughs> they're not as bad as you're saying or maybe it's not as good as you're saying. Maybe there's more to it, you know?" And, and there's always an apologetic energy to that, I think, you know, to because everybody just wants to answer the damn question and move on to something else. And when you're saying, wait, there's nuance, nobody wants to fucking hear that. But it's really yeah. important. So uh, I think it's good what you're doing. It's interesting. And maybe, you know, if you had the same kind of uh, personality and, and insight, Back in those days, maybe you would have been standing up and doing something different. You're doing maybe. it now, so. Well, thank, I don't know. Maybe I would just be lazy and just, you know, <laughs> self-serving. And, and look, we are selfish as well, aren't we? Everybody's self-serving. And, and, and those people are as well, the, as I talk about the woke people or whatever, and people on the other side. At the end of the day, we're animals and... You know, yeah. what gives us status, what makes us feel good about ourselves, we do. It so happens that I'm at a point in my life right now, it sounds like you're somewhere in that space as well, and a lot of the listeners will be, where we value the kind of person who can take that Socratic um, approach, you know, like uh, the, 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 the more I know I don't know, the more I know or something. And because it makes right. us feel good to say, hey, look how, look how not judgmental I am. It makes me feel good. So uh, we're just as prone to it as, as other people who, who don't get excited about it makes me feel like, look, look how non-judgmental I am. They get excited about, I'm on the right side of history. And that's their thing. So who knows? Yeah, I, I just posted something on Twitter this morning uh, saying that, I forget the the way I phrased it, but basically I was saying 
because the IPCC report just came out, you know, the latest dire, you know, oh, my God, we're fucked kind of report. Um, And people are saying, as they have been for 15 years, we've got to do something soon. We've got to change the way we live. And of course, we don't change the way we live. Um, And I said something about how, you know, I'm very kind of fatalistic about things because I feel like we convince ourselves that we're different from other animals, but I don't really think we're different from birds flocking or salmon schooling or, you know, these emergent behaviors that come out of groups of social uh, creatures. And I feel like, you know, what comes out of human conglomerations or corporations and the, you know, drive to profit and dominance and exploitation and stuff. And I don't really see how appealing to individuals, like I don't think recycling or eating tofu is going to change the course of history. And, um, you know, I feel bad about saying that because then people say, oh, then we shouldn't try. And that's not really what I'm saying, but I do feel like we are, you know, sort of floating down a river and we can paddle a little bit toward that bank or this bank, but it's the Amazon. We're in the middle of a massive Mm. flow. And um, to the extent that we paddle this way or that, I I feel like we do that more to assuage our own sense of impotence than uh, it's really going to have any impact. I don't know why I'm saying that. No, Something you just said reminded me. I think you're spot on. I think probably about the selfishness of human beings and how we're just like other oh, animals right. in that respect. Yeah. I, I mean, let, let's be one thing that's not talked about enough with the climate change stuff, right? I think most of us can get on board now with the idea that humans are affecting it. People disagree to what extent, whatever. Here's another question, though, that isn't asked really, and that's how much do we really, if we're honest, completely honest, right? And, and I'm talking about the type of honesty where you wouldn't admit it to anyone. You know, you keep this, this is your dark thought at night. How much do you really care about the grandchildren of your grandchildren? And I'm not, it could happen quicker than yeah. that. I, I respect that. I understand that. But most people are thinking, eh, 150 years, the earth's not here anymore. Well, I haven't been here for 100 years at that point. Yeah, and and I don't have any children. So I'm not even, it's not even a, a question for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting how our uh, focus has become so, you know, sort of as religious thinking has subsided and we're not really worried about the afterlife or Judgment Day anymore. Mm-hmm. It becomes all about how does this affect me? And the, you know, the scope gets reduced pretty <laughs> dramatically. Yeah. But I mean, I, I said something, I read this article recently in the Atlantic magazine, I've mentioned this on my podcast previously, um, about geologic time and climate change over geological time. And the author, I think the author's agenda quite clearly was to reinforce the idea that, you know, that this level of carbon in the atmosphere is associated with alligators in Antarctica and, you know, palm trees in Greenland and like the shit's going to get real weird real fast here. But what it left me feeling was the earth is constantly changing, right? These volcanic eruptions that send the earth into an ice age and then the tilt of the earth and slight, you know, fluctuations in the orbit around the sun send the earth into all sorts of different climactic conditions. And 
So we've been living, civilization has arisen in a very unusual and brief period of climactic stability for the last five to 10,000 years. And there's no reason to expect that to continue. There's every reason to expect it to continue um, fluctuating. And so it seems that the Anthropocene that we're experiencing now could actually have delayed the onset of the next ice age. Hmm. Well, so it's even more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. what a result that would be. Not that I care, because it would be my grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren would benefit. And, exactly. You know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about the science. I believe 97% of scientists, the way I look at it really, and because I never, you know what I, I hate, and I think we've discussed this a lot already, it's the righteousness and the idea that some somebody might be more sort of superior to their animalistic instincts, and they're the ones who are better and right. And what nonsense you know none of us are i am a vegetarian and i would love to tell myself the reason is because i want to save the planet and i want to save all this stuff and you know and and i probably do tell myself deep down that because it's a nice narrative isn't it the the truth of it is it just grosses me out to eat a dead animal right and it always has done Mm. and as i got older i realized there was enough nice vegetarian food that i was able to stop thinking about it and just it grosses me out if somebody threw a you know a dead bird on my plate I'd be grossed out by it. Um, and, and and with climate change, again, like I, I don't know enough about all of it, but what I do know is it's not nice when I stand behind a car exhaust and it all goes in my face. I like the idea of clean energy then. It's not because I'm some great person who wants to save future generations from, from this or that. So you need i guess you need what i'm saying is and what we're both saying i think is that if for the world to work and the reason the world has worked so well for hundreds of years now is you just have to be lucky and hope that selfish interests on a global scale work together in some way that it saves the world and everything ends up being fine and so far capitalism has sort of (laughs) saved us each time and you just hope that the next time Uh there's a big emergency it will save again until it until it doesn't and that'll be the end of us he said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we've ever known Is headed
it's a big deal if you wanna be free say what you wanna feel spend the night with me i'm gonna take you up in my arms and if we must go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground